So hello everyone um, and welcome to our Wallstone Craftivism programme. This is a programme that we're going to be running um, throughout the six weeks of the summer holiday. Um, and each week we're going to be learning about a different craft um, and we're going to be learning about uh, someone who uses that craft um, or art style um, to be an activist and to help them with their, their activist work. And so today we're going to be um, hearing from Alexis and Alexis is a member of the New Unity Congregation and a very experienced sewer and crafter who um, is going to be telling about us about some of the things that she's made and some of the projects that she's worked on and how she feels about using craftivism in her work. So thanks so much for joining us Alexis. Hi, it's nice to be here. Um, so we're going to ask you a few questions and then the idea is that the people um, that use this program are going to be able to use some of your work as an inspiration, learn a bit more about it. So my first question um, is, um, what causes have you used craftivism for? Well, I think, broadly speaking, I've never really thought of myself as a craftivist before this. Um, but it does feel like the right sort of label. Uh, mostly, I think what I've done is um, use my knowledge of sewing to help out people around me. Um, so like during the pandemic, I've been making scrubs for the NHS and now I've moved on to making masks for my neighbors. Um, but I've also used it uh, in order to sort of push back against environmental waste with clothing. Hmm. Um, being able to mend your own clothes um, and to make your own clothes. In fact, I made this dress. Um, oh, wonderful. Great, yeah, it's, it's a great way to reduce your environmental impact. Because um, I made this with secondhand fabric that I bought in a charity shop. Um, and it also helps you know, it helps you be more comfortable with how you look and how you feel about your own body and how you feel in your own skin. Um, you don't have to throw things out so often and it makes it easier for you to identify what things are well made and how they're going to last. Um, I have also used my crafting skills for um, various things, often making things in order to go to a protest. So oh, mm. for several protests, I made myself a full-length Victorian morning veil. So one of the things I like to do is to take fairly traditional items of clothing and reuse them as points of protest in order to tie a protest about how we want things to change in with long-term tradition. So uh, the Victorian morning veil, that used to be um, pretty normal, at least for the upper classes of Victorian Britain, to go through a year-long period of mourning that was mostly signified by different colors of clothes and face coverings and gloves. And a lot of the protests I've been to in the past couple of years have been protests where I felt like I was mourning the loss or the death of something. And so for me, it felt really appropriate to make a mourning veil and wear all black and carry white flowers and wear gloves um, because I wanted to capture that the, the reason that I was there was because I was grieved and upset. Um, so that would be things both um, protest about political situations, but mostly also um, uh, for climate change. Um, it felt particularly appropriate for that. And then another time I've done that was when I was still living in the US. Um, there was a lot of controversy about whether or not women could be bishops and whether or not, ah. um, whether or not gay people were, you know, able to be priests and bishops and so mm. on and so forth. So, 
in one part of the Episcopal Church, which is the same as the Anglican Church here, pretty much, um, if you're very high traditional, uh, women would wear little doilies on the back of their head, is what they always oh. look like to me, but they're properly called chapel veils. So a friend of mine and I hatched a plan to <laughs> make ourselves chapel veils and embroider them with slogans like a woman's place is in the bishopric. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Um, in order to wear them to mass uh, to make a point. Um, subtly, but pretty loudly. Um, so it's, you know, it's that sort of thing that interests mm. me is um, reusing old forms and making them new again. So our next question is, um, do you use other forms of activism alongside your craftivism? Or when you um, partake in your activism, is it usually craft that you use as the format for that? That's a difficult question to answer um, because it, it's sort of, it's hard to know what the boundaries of an activism are. I think, I think a lot about um, how to do sort of life as art, and that plays into a lot of it, is that I tend to focus on what's around me and the opportunities that I have to help people to think differently about things, um, but without necessarily pushing a very particular meaning. Uh, so one way that I've done that is um, I'm part of the uh, lay ministry team at New Unity. So sometimes I give messages at Sunday gatherings. And last August, I did one on ecological grief, um, where I got the entire congregation participating in a morning ritual um, for climate change. Um, and that isn't necessarily directly tied to craft, but it's sort of the whole spectrum of all those drama classes my parents thought were useless when the dance classes they thought would never lead to anything or amount to much. Um, all those sort of art and craft skills, being able to pull all of that together mm. um, makes, it, makes me much more confident about trying to persuade people um, and trying to give people something to um, look at and experience and make meaning from that hopefully will change them. Is there something about this kind of, I don't want to say softer, because I think that's unfair, but um, maybe gentler and less aggressive, um, maybe type of protest that suits you, um, that you're kind of drawn to? Is that because that's maybe... Um, like more your nature or you feel more comfortable or do you or do you you just think that it has a different impact that you're drawn to that style well I think for me um I I am quite a feminine identified person um and have been ever since I can remember so it feels natural to me although I'm sure some of it's socially constructed but I have always really prized um, the kinds of labor and skills that are coded as feminine. I think that it's really easy for us to focus on um, creating opportunities for uh, women to take on things that are traditionally masculine skills because those are prized more and seem mm. to be worth more. Um, but for me, it's always felt really, really important that um, 
feminine skills or traditionally coded feminine skills um, mm. be prized as highly because they, they're pretty substantial. You're not, we can certainly see that becoming more evident all the time yeah. um, with the reemergence of the gender gap in childcare and housework and so on. Mm. Um, so while, you know, a lot of this was never something that one could have studied at school, um, it's, it's just always been very important to me um, to know about things like how to run a household because there is a lot of skill in it, mm. um, even if it's entirely uncompensated and unthought of. Yeah. And really important to know how to sew and how to knit and how to do all that sort of thing. Um, and I think we would all be better off if we were more open to acquiring those kinds of skills instead of thinking that it's too girly or too too mm. soft um, to be worthwhile. And it, yeah. it, is, it is an issue that's kind of hard to talk about because it's um, difficult not to get led right back into the very traditional idea of the gender binary with it. Um, but I really don't see it as being something that is essentially feminine so much as something that's coded as feminine. And it's always, I just am really drawn to promoting that kind of skill and taking it seriously. Um, that's a really good, um, that's a good point. And actually there's been some really interesting like books and articles that I've kind of come across recently, which is kind of talking about, um, it you know being construed as kind of feminine coded but also you know um you know tailors you know that was very male dominated and things like that so this idea like you mentioned that it's a a kind of um a very a feminine thing i think is is also part of the problem it's not is it and like you said if everyone learn all of these things then we would all be better off i think we would yeah i do and i i suppose that's actually probably sort of activist cause I'm the most long-term committed to <laughs> um, is promoting the importance of, of things like crafting and sewing. Mm. Great and yeah. um, so um, I suppose you answered my question the, the next question because it was what appeals to you about using craft in your activism do you think is there anything there Alexis that perhaps you didn't cover that you wanted to kind of share? Well a little bit of something um, for me being able to do all of this makes me feel really connected to everything that's ever happened. Um, it's a little bit understudied and underrecognized. So there's a long history in novels and um, in, in actual lived history as well of women using uh, textile skills like knitting in order to convey secret messages. Um, there's a character, I believe it's Dickens, and I'm pretty sure it's Tale of Two Cities of a woman who isn't taken seriously and is just sitting in the corner knitting all the time. Mm. Um, she's actually working as a spy and she's knitting coded messages ah. into her work and sending them on. But of course, because um, she's a feminine person doing this very feminine labor, she's just completely unnoticed. And that was wow. based on an actual historical Fascinating, well. that's a great example. Yeah. Yeah, and then in, in Britain, there's a long tradition of um, using banners uh, based to form group identities and to protest. And there are some really, really spectacularly beautiful examples of that kind of work. Um, so that's, that's another inspiration. It just helps me feel more connected 
Mm. So craftivism is something that's not new. It's something that's been going on for a long time, but perhaps we've only termed it craftivism recently. Actually, when you said that, Alexis, it, it, it reminded me of all of those amazing banners. And I think I've got a picture of one here, actually. Like, here's, here's a Votes for Women one that's Huddersfield-based, you know, that would have been created and things like that. It makes you think that actually craftivism is and has always probably been something we've just not really thought about it as its own distinct thing. Well, and you know, all those rosettes and sashes. That mm, yeah, of course. For, um, that's how they raised their money, that mm. in their newsletter. And guess who made them? Yeah. You know, the, the WSBU itself. My other question was, um, this one is, uh, who and what inspires your activism? And, you know, you've, you've obviously, um, you've spoke a bit about kind of history and, and things before inspiring it. Is that a big inspiration for you? It's definitely something I, I draw a lot of inspiration from. Yes, I mean, I am really motivated by a strong feeling that the world's really out of culture. Um, and of course, you know, no one can change that all by themselves. Mm. But I think by um, trying to live out as best we can the things that we value and talking about them when we're given the chance and showing them to other people whenever we're given the chance, you can end up changing lots of people's minds. Um, maybe not entirely on any yeah. given day, but you can start people thinking about things in a way that they haven't before. And uh, in the end, that is how change comes about, is when we all change our minds together. And where do you get the ideas from? You know, so you had this kind of, the idea, the project you worked on with the morning veil and the chapel hats, which is a, a wonderful idea because it's, there's so many layers going on there of things that you're talking about and things that you think are important and getting people to think about. Where, where do you get the inspiration for, for those kind of ideas? Where do, they, where do those ideas come from? But, you know, I don't really know. They just sort of <laughs> seem to happen. <laughs> um, I think it's just a willingness to sort of look again at things. Um, mm. This is going to betray the fact that I went to philosophy school, but objects pretty much are not the thing that they are only within themselves. So they mm. are always wreathed with um, significance and meaning that comes from relationships, whether that's a relationship between persons or an individual in a large group or even an individual and their entire environment. And I think it's just sort of, um, it starts from feeling moved in a particular way, trying to recognize that feeling, and then just allowing that to recall times you've seen that embodied or inscribed into the world, and then, um, then using that to make a project. Mm. And I suppose symbols are, a, a, again, like you were saying, something that gets used quite a lot in craftivism, especially things like banners, like you said. Yes, and the more you read about clothing history and textile history, the more you realize that it really is at the foundation of humans, um, of humanity and civilization as we know it, um, because it's absolutely fundamental to our ability to uh, navigate the world because we need clothes. Um, we would 
be in a great deal of trouble in the winter without them. Um, and to shelter ourselves and make our beds and all the furniture that we use and keep ourselves clean and so on and so forth. So the more you learn both about how to make things, because at this point in my life, um, my most recent skill that I acquired is spinning. Um, so learning how to turn raw wool into yarn. Um, the more you learn about that, the more you learn about how things are made, the more you see um, that textiles are quite fundamental. And the more you know about clothing history, the more you understand about how it has been used in order to convey meaning to other people, in order to make clear the relationship of some individuals to the other individuals in the room. We don't just wear clothes for comfort or, um, or modesty or anything like that. We wear clothes to express some sort of meaning. Otherwise, we'd all just wear the same thing. Um, and people don't really like the idea of having to wear the same thing as everybody else. Um, although, of course, when we do do that, when we have uniforms, that also explains something. Mm. So once you start thinking about clothes really in that way and what they mean and what they symbolize um, and how they really affect how other people will relate to you, uh, it's hard not to see opportunities. Mm. And you've been using um, your craftivism skills recently in light of the coronavirus pandemic. Can you tell us a bit about that, Alexis? So, um, all across the country, really, um, a lot of people who know how to sew and have sewing machines, um, running the gamut from people who learned how to sew back when that was still taught at school ages and ages ago. Um, and people who usually work as costume manufacturers or mm. as um, small-scale uh, fashion manufacturers um, have taken to their sewing machines to make scrubs for the NHS because a lot of people uh, were coming back to work in the NHS or a lot of people who would ordinarily wear their own clothes um, want to wear scrubs because it's very easy to take them off and wash them at the end of a shift. Mm. Um, and it started in several different places at once, one over in Hackneywick and um, another one started, I want to say it with Sussex, um, but there are several loose organizations of people doing this where basically we have recreated the pre-industrial revolution system of clothing manufacture, um, where there'll be one or two people per area who buy in the fabric and cut it into the right pieces and then they parcel those up and there'll be like 20 or 30 people who come and take the parcels and take them home and sew them together and then bring them back to right. the person they got them from. And this is happening um, just everywhere at the moment. Um, we still, you know, still have not uh, satisfied the need for scrubs. Mm. And it's been, I think, eight weeks now, or 10 weeks really. Um, and it's not just scrubs, it's also things like people will make items to help extend the life of PPE or to make it more comfortable to wear. Mm. Um, like there are headbands that you can make so that the elastic from a mask hooks onto them instead of pulling on your ears all day. Yeah. Um, and also wash bags so that people can take their scrubs off at the end of their shift and put it in a bag so that it doesn't contaminate everything else that they're carrying. Mm. Um, so I've been doing that ever since I went on furlough, so that would be the 1st of April, and so for 
20 or 30 hours a week. I've been um, sitting here in this room at my sewing machine, uh, sewing together scrubs. Um, and it's been really great to have purposeful work. Hmm. Is it a political act for you making the scrubs? It is. It is. Um, I, you know, um, I'm a little bit dismayed by how we have uh, left people who provide this very essential care work um, without what they need to do mm. it. Um, it also, and this isn't something I'm directly being activist about at this exact moment, but it has also made me think really hard about um, sort of the garment industry in general mm. in a way that I was already aware of, but I know from um, timing myself, trying to make the process more efficient, that it takes mm. me two and one quarter hours to sew together a scrub top. Now, if I were working in a factory, I am sure I would go twice as fast because, you know, I've only got a domestic sewing machine. And my setup's not ideal. Um, but that means that if I were doing it twice as fast, that means it would cost about 16 pounds. Um, just the sewing, not the wow. material, not the Gosh, cutting. Wow, yeah. That's the London living wage. So that would cost 16 pounds. And, you know, no profit in that, no expenses, no nothing. Mm. Um, and most of our clothes like this come from Bangladesh. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with them coming from Bangladesh, but it has made me realize how much we exploit people in Bangladesh. Mm and elsewhere because that's fascinating so through this process you're learning and i guess part of this uh, sewing takes time doesn't it so you, you're it thinking does. and you're engaging with what you're doing all the time yeah yeah you very definitely are it really is skilled labor and it's been mm. treated as unskilled labor because it's coded feminine and that was really the first kind of labor to be mechanized and um exported Mm. Um, and it's made me think about, well, what can I do, um, as time keeps going on to start drawing a little bit more attention to this issue yeah. and helping other people to, um, do something about it themselves as well. Cause it's, it's, it would be way too simple to say, oh, well, you should just buy British cause that's not going to work either. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thank you, Alexis. And I think that we're going to be creating banners this week, um, inspired by your work and what you've been telling us about. So do you have any top tips for banner making before the people um, watching start creating their own? Uh, mostly just have fun and enjoy it. Um, making a banner is really a chance to give, to give expression to something that you feel passionate about. So try and think maybe of something that you've learned during the pandemic that you want other people to know, or maybe you feel really grateful about something and you want to mm. express that, or maybe you feel really angry about something and you want to express that. This is a great way to do that. And the main thing is to have fun and not worry too much about what the back of the work looks like, um, especially if it's your first project. Great. Well, thank you so much, Alexis. Of course. Great to be here.